We've been talking about worship. Worship within the, uh, the, the context of the church. Worship is something that we do all of our lives. We do a special way as we gather together as the corporate body of Christ. Worship is the raison d'etre of the church. That's a big French word. It means it's the, the reason that we are. Evangelism, mercy ministry, Christian education, fellowship, giving, all of those flow from worship. We are saved and continue to live that we might worship God with all that we are and in a particular way when we come together as a family to worship. In our own confession, it says that the light of nature shows that there's a God. Creation itself cries out there is a God. And this God has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is good and He does good to all and He ought to be feared, loved, praised, prayed to, trusted in and served with all of our heart, all of our soul and all of our might. This is God as He has made Himself known to us. And He speaks about the idea that we are to worship Him. We acknowledge that the acceptable way to worship God is the way that He's told us to worship Him. He's not only called us to worship, but He's not left it up to our uh, own devices and imagination. He's given us in His Word the way He expects to be worshipped. The way He calls us to worship, the perfect manner of worshipping. We come together with the reading of Scriptures. We do so with reverence. We, We soundly preach the Word. We conscientiously hear the Word. We administer the sacraments. We take vows. Sometimes we observe fasts and thanksgiving. We sing praise to God. We pray. We do these things in a holy and devout way. This is how the people of God come together to worship. As we've been talking about worship up to this point, we've covered a few points about it. In particular, we began by talking about that the world has gotten worship and entertainment combined and and, and tangled up, and we as a church fall victim to that way too often. Because if worship becomes entertainment, then the worshipers become the audience, and our worship becomes very me-focused. Entertainment is idolatrous when we come with that attitude in worship. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want music to be done well, that we don't want a beautiful place to to gather, but the thing that the Lord cares most about is not the beauty of the musical tones that we make, not the beauties of the edifice that we inhabit, not the eloquence of the words that we use, but the beauty of the hearts that have been redeemed and saved by Jesus that we bring before Him and pour out in praise to Him. We are reminded in Isaiah 29, that there are those who draw near with their mouths and not with their hearts. They honor God with their lips, but it's an empty praise. It's a facade with no substance. And we talked about that we, as we worship the Lord, if our hearts are filled with praise for God, then it will pour forth. And that's why we sing. We wed godly words with godly emotion, with godly passion behind them, and we sing to God. We were also reminded last week that we come with broken and contrite hearts. We come this morning confessing our sins, broken by our sins, but picked up by a Savior who loves us and embraces us as forgiven. Today we're talking about the sacraments. The sacraments, that's a, that's a, a church word. It refers to those two ordinances that have been ordained by Christ, instituted by Him, 
to which we've been commanded to continue in them until he comes again. And they are too. The sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper we have before us. Those reminders of the two sacraments. That in baptism, by the, by the pouring of water, we're reminded of God's covenant promises to us and to our children. And in coming to the table, we're reminded that the Lord is with us, the Lord who gave His body and His blood that we would be saved. We think about the sacraments this morning and their right place in the assembly as we come together as a family of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is that text we return to, uh, interestingly enough, written by one who did not observe the Last Supper firsthand, but as he says, was instructed by the Lord. He received this from the Lord and he passes it on to us. Speaking of the reality of the event where our Savior did, prior to his death, describe what was to take place and the reason that it was happening. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember, this chapter begins by the Apostle Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. What a wonderful thing that we follow him to the table. And this is God's word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, uh, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. You hear words of warning, words of solemn rebuke there. He goes on to say, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He says, but I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed... He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I'll give directions when I come. Thank you, Lord God, for the Apostle Paul uh, setting this before the church as a first thing, as a priority thing, a thing to be made right, that we come to the table and we understand what we're doing. Uh, Give us wisdom this morning as we hear your words. Father, may we apply it to our hearts and may we put it into practice as we come to the table in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. The phrase, having a place at the table, is a phrase of significance. We all want a place at the table. I remember as a, a, a young child, you know, that I would be banished to the cardboard table of death along with the other children, and no matter how old I got, until one of my older relatives passed away, I could never get a seat at the big table. The big round table that my granddaddy made, the table that's in my brother's house now with a, a big lazy Susan in the middle, 
Those are remarkable inventions. And all the food would be out there on the table, and all you had to do was turn it around, and there was more to be found. A wonderful thing to have a place at the table. A place at the table meant you were part of the family. You were there and, and, and deemed to be old enough, and it was all right and good, and we would come. But, you know, as a child and even becoming a teenager, I was still at the table with my cousins who were not even in elementary school yet. I'm sitting there and banging the table with my knees that they got too, too tall to be up under there. I didn't have a place at the table. We find this at work. We, we find it uh, in uh, government. We find this phrase being used all the time. To have a place at the table means to belong there. It means that I have been invited to come and that my presence there is requested and appreciated. It means that I have a voice. It means that I have some standing. We all want a place at the table. And we find this to be uh, the epitome of what it means to truly have a place at the table. It is to come to the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul begins with all these warnings talking about the things that I hear going on when it comes time to come and enjoy the Lord's Supper, to come and celebrate this, is not what I ought to hear. He even brings up I mean, several problems we found unfolded throughout 1 Corinthians. But right here he's talking about, you know, when you have wine at communion, some of you are guzzling it down such that you're getting drunk as you come together to celebrate the table. These things should not be. He says, shall I commend you about this? Oh, no, I will not, he says. Then he reminds us, he said, these are things that I received from the Lord. And these are things I received from the Lord that he described on the night in which he was betrayed. And before he gave his life, we speak about the gravity of coming to the table. So what is the Lord's Supper? What is it that we do? Our catechism says it is a sacrament of the New Testament whereby... In giving and receiving bread and wine, according to the portment of Jesus, His death is shown forth. And we, as we worthily communicate, we feed upon His body and blood with spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. We have union and communion with Jesus confirmed. We testify and we renew our thankfulness, our engagement to God, and our mutual love and fellowship with each other. We come as members of the same body the same family to this table. John Calvin, as he spoke about this, and he was looking at the ways that it was, it was used improperly, the aberrations of the, uh, of the mass and the things that were going on uh, where you would see the same elements, but the message was different. It was that Jesus was continually being sacrificed, that the bread and the, and the wine became the flesh and became the blood of Jesus, and they in themselves had magical properties John Calvin spoke about that when he said, The Lord has given us not an altar on which a victim will be offered, but He's given a table at which we may come and feast. He's given us not priests who would make sacrifice for us again and again, but servants and ministers to distribute food. So we we come to a table and we enjoy a meal. And we feed and we grow. And that's what happens. That's why we bid our children to eat. And when they're sick, you need to eat. You need to get strong. You need to be fed. And we come to the table and we are bid by our Savior to come and to eat, to be nourished, to be made strong in the Lord. We, we place the table and its significance in history. The real event, not of a folk tale, not of a fairy tale, but the real event, the historical origin of the Lord's Supper is that final supper that Jesus had with His disciples. 
He ate with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. And all that he said point us to what we do here today. He himself is the origin. Jesus is the root of all of this. He is to be our focus as we come. So what do we know about the meal? What does the text teach us and what do we see as we come? First off, it is a public meal. There are many world religions and the world religions uh, often have secret ritual. Interestingly enough, as you drive past uh, many different uh, places where people gather for religious worship, uh, it's interesting to count the number of them that don't have windows. There, there are gatherings out there that are not of, of Christian faith that, that refuse to build windows because what they do, they do in secret. We don't come to a secret diner. We don't come to a secret, secret meal here. There's nothing secretive about it. We do it in public. It has public meaning. If we look at the text right here, it says five times in this passage, five times in this passage when you come together. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. We come together. This is for the family of God. Now, there are the ways that we extend this in a particular way. Say someone who is in a nursing home or a hospital is unable to be here with us, that we are able to, to provide it in a, in a real and a, in a special way in those environs. For instance, if somebody is requested that the Lord's Supper be served and they're not able to get here, uh, we don't go and just hand them a piece of bread and hand them a cup and say, there, you're done, you got the, you got the magic stuff, you're good to go. That's not what we do. We, we, we declare it to be a time of worship that uh, a few that are able to be there, sometimes it's very small quarters, maybe an elder and a couple of wives and a couple of us, a few of us will go together and there we'll sing together. There we'll open the word together. There we will have a service of worship together. And there we will come to the table together. It's to be done as a family. It's to be done. This is why we don't celebrate private communion. This is why we don't just go and and take it whenever we feel like it. Whenever we need a little bit of a pick-me-up, we just go and pop a piece of bread and a shot of wine and, and consider it good. That's not what we do. We come to this table It's a public meal, and it is a meal of bread and wine. These are not magical elements. They're simple. It's bread and it's wine. It's what the Lord had before him at that meal. It would have been something common, a constant reminder, something that we would be able to see in front of us again and again and again. And you'll see as we administer the table here today that we don't elevate it. We don't lift it up. There's no magic moment in which it becomes something different. The bread remains bread. The cup remains the cup. Like I was talking about with the kids they're signs. And, and we don't look to the sign to be the fulfillment of what's promised. The sign points us, points us to the thing promised, the things hoped for, the things for which we live. It's, it's bread and it's wine. There's historically been different positions on that. Transubstantiation, that the, the, the bread and the wine become the body and the blood of Jesus. Consubstantiation, that meaning that the the, the reality of Jesus' physical presence is around the elements, though maybe not in them. We believe in the real presence of Jesus here today. Jesus is here with us today, amen? amen? But He's not here in the form of bread. He's not here in the form of wine. He is here as our Savior. He is the one who said, I will never leave you. He's the one who said, I will be with you always, even to the end. He is the one who promised in Matthew 18, where you have gathered two or more in my name, I am there with you. He is here 
in a real way, a spiritual way. A spiritual way. And, and we celebrate that presence in a real way at the table. For at the table we gather together as a family, and we are an incomplete family if Christ is not with us. Our Savior is here with us. But we recognize the, the bread and the wine. They stay bread and wine. But here's something that, that can become a problem. If we say that the, the, the bread stays bread, the cup stays cup, uh, there can be a tendency that we, we treat them as, as meaningless and we would come with frivolity. We would come lightly to the table. This was one of the, the significant issues uh, that came to a head prior to the PCA getting started in the early 70s. One of the things that, that happened that, that caused a great stir at a general assembly discussion uh, was one particular pastor as they were uh, having the Lord's Supper in a worship service and that particular service was being televised, told the people at home, saying, hey, listen, if you're at home, you can participate with us. You may not have bread, you may not have wine, but you know what? A slice of cold pizza and a beer, that'll do. Or, or youth directors who with s'mores and Coca-Cola, would celebrate it around a campfire. This is an important meal. It's a meal of significance, a meal of weight. And we treat it as such, and we're going to see why. It's a meal of weight and of significance because it's a meal of remembrance. A meal rooted in the real event of the crucifixion of Jesus, historical facts, the reality of Jesus that we consciously call to mind Jesus and all that He has done for us, the work that He has done, that He died for us, that He rose again, and that His work is what is necessary for our forgiveness, for our eternity, the thing that we spoke to our children about all week, that our Savior has prepared a place for them. And the way that He prepared that place is He constructed it in His sacrifice. He constructed it in His full atonement for our sins that we might be able to be in the presence of God forever and ever. Amen? Making sure you're still awake. This is a meal of significance, a meal of weight, a meal that we come with a sober reverence, but also an overwhelming joy, because it is a meal with Jesus, a meal with Jesus. In the Reformed tradition, we look at it and we describe it as this, a truly unique meeting with the resurrected Jesus, who promises to nourish and save our souls as we feed upon Him by faith. It's a real and a spiritual presence. He is the one who said He would be with us always. Jesus is here, brothers and sisters, as we gather together in worship and in a special way as we come to the table. It's an important meal. But one other thing that the apostle writes about this, and he speaks about it in, in the, the same tone that he begins this passage with, speaking about the idea of worthily coming to the table. And we think about this as a public meal. It's a meal of bread and wine. It's a meal of remembrance. It's a meal with Jesus. And it's a meal for believers. It's a meal for those who have given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are following Him. Those who on that final day, the Lord will look at them and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. It's for those who are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart. So what does that mean? Can weak believers come? Oh yes, please do. Can weeping believers come? I think we need to come with tears. Tears of joy as we weep over our sins and weep for joy at the salvation, the forgiveness that we have. Is it a table for those who may find their faith 
just battered and beaten by the circumstances of life. Absolutely it is. But what of this? The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, whoever comes, let him examine himself. Let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 28 in 1 Corinthians 11. Examine ourselves. That we discern the body and the blood of Jesus. The question is posed, do you know Jesus? Is he your Savior? We're called upon as the church to, to affirm that. We testify before men that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't make private confessions of faith. We, we make them public. We shout them from the mountaintops. You received in, in membership in Christ's church by, by speaking to the leadership of that church, testifying and having that, that testimony of God's grace in your life affirmed, saying, yes, we, we see this to be happening in your life, and we rejoice with you in this. This is a meal for believers, but Paul does warn those who are not following the Lord, those who have not testified that they love the Lord God with all of their heart, those who are still counting on their own goodness or something else for their salvation. He gives a great warning. You don't understand who Jesus is. You don't understand the meaning of this meal. You're not discerning the body of Jesus rightly. And he gives a warning with great purpose. He says... As you examine yourself, you need to know that in Jesus Christ you can be forgiven. In Jesus Christ you can know eternal life. And in Jesus Christ you can have a place at the table. You may come, but don't come until. And that's, that, is, that is no, there's no shame in that moment to allow the elements to pass by. But there is great grief to be content in that status. We've been called upon to to seek after Christ and His righteousness, to, to find the joy of being a part of the family of God, to pursue that with all of our heart. And as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we allow the elements to pass by in that we know that today I'm not trusting in the Lord as my Savior, Don't let another moment go by without giving your life to the Lord. Let that happen today even. Let that be what changes the rest of your life. Let it be in the moment when the people of God come to the table and you say, I want a place there. I want to know that family love of the family of God. But this day, let it be a day of self-examination. Christian, You who love the Lord God know that you have a place. The Lord has made that place for you. I think about Joseph Hart's great hymn, Come You Sinners, Poor and Needy. It's a wonderful reminder that we do need the Lord, that we find ourselves needy. He feeds us. He clothes us. He cares for us. Those of you who this day may not know the Lord as your Savior know this, that conscience, Joseph Hart says, don't let it make you linger. Don't For fitness, fondly dream, that is, to find a way to get good enough to come to God. He says, in this wait hymn, he says, All the fitness that the Lord requires is that you feel the need of Him, that we would know that I need the Lord today. Christian, we come to the table and we rejoice in doing so. It's the place for the family of God. Let us prepare to come to the table this morning as we turn in our hymnal to number 252. Just four verses. 
as we sing, I'll ask that we sing the last verse uh, without accompaniment, just our voices lifted up to God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll stand together and sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, number 252. Bow with me. Almighty God, we thank you and we praise you for your word and how it draws us to you. Thank you, Lord God, that through Jesus Christ, we may know what it is to be a part of the family of God. And as we come to the table now, Lord, we ask that you would lead us and guide us, that we would know the sweet presence of our Savior here with us, that we would dine in faith and go forth in great strength. And we pray, Lord God, that those among us who may not be trusting in you at this moment, Father, would not allow another moment to pass without surrendering their life to you and saying, Lord Jesus, I am yours. Thank you for loving me. Father, be with us as we prepare and as we come in Jesus' name. Amen.